It was a collision of kingdoms. The plans were in place. The tactics were put together. And then came the battle. The young seminarian was not prepared for this battle. In his midst was a room full of people who were ready to have a Veterans Day service on a Sunday, filling the room with red, white, and blue bunting to sing My Country Tis of Thee, to exalt all that is the sacrifices of American soldiers. The crisis came when it had to be discussed that as the church of Jesus Christ, our identity is not in our nation. Our identity is in our king. And this king is a sovereign over every tribe, tongue, and people. Little did the young pastor know that in taking such a stand and in uttering such words, that pastor's patriotism would be questioned. His appreciation for veterans and all of their sacrifices would be questioned. His legitimacy as a Christian would be questioned. Because you see, when you make your identity something other than Christ and his kingdom, things get awkward. Identity is a core element of what Paul is talking about as he is exhorting his friends in Philippi to recover and remember. Know who you are. Stand together with one mind and one heart so that when trials come, you can weather them. But in order to do that, all secondary and subsidiary identities had to be left to the wayside. No longer could they be about anything less than Jesus and his kingdom. Or anything less than that, their ranks would break and the assaults of those opposed to the kingdom would crush them. So let's look at what Paul says. Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Let me invite you to stand as we hear God's word. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit 
with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that is from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, speak through me. Speak in spite of me. Would I decrease only so that Jesus would increase? Would you shoot a straight shot with a crooked arrow such as me? For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Be seated. In verse 27, this is what Paul says. He says, let your manner of life. What he's talking about here is where is your ultimate identity? Where are you deriving your sense of unity and purpose. If you're a citizen of the kingdom of God, if you're a citizen of Jesus' kingdom, live that way. The call to talk about living as a citizen of heaven and what emissaries of heaven look and act like here on earth. So three ideas Um, from this text, all linked together under this big idea of as we suffer together for the cause of Christ. So let me just go ahead and say it now. The Bible expects your suffering. I believe it was C.S. Lewis that said the problem is not why, um, why people suffer. The problem is why more people don't. Three ideas. First, we stand together in selfless humility. Second idea, we face our adversaries with calm endurance. Third idea, um, we do so with the gift of faith and the gift of suffering. So, let's chat, shall we? What does Paul mean when he says, in one spirit, with one mind? hear it, you see it in, in many of our texts, spirit is lowercase, so it looks like Paul's just being redundant, right? In one spirit, with one mind, he's just saying the same thing, albeit in slightly different ways. But there is a case to be made that what Paul is actually doing is getting ready to lay out the rest of the argument that he's going to use through chapters 2 and 3 and 4 to talk about our very union in and with Christ by the power of the Spirit that now dwells within us so that standing in that Spirit, and that Spirit is what enables then the with one mind, we may stand firm together 
um, being of one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Because really, after all, it is the Holy Spirit that is the creator and the preserver of our oneness with one another. Okay? Our unity with one another is not like an affinity group. It's not because we like the way we dress or talk or where we're from or how we raise our kids. Our unity, our union with one another is because of the same spirit that indwells all of God's people. That's why we have unity of spirit with those in sub-Saharan Africa, with our brothers and sisters in China, with our brothers and sisters in Ukraine and Russia, with our brothers and sisters in Canada, with our brothers and sisters in, dare I say it, Oklahoma. It's because of the spirit that is at work in us that unifies all of God's people. See, I'm from South Carolina, so it would have been funny in South Carolina to say North Carolina, but that's a, everybody, every state has their little brother state that, at any rate. Now, why is this? It's because the Spirit unites us to Christ, remakes us from the inside out, and begins the process of cultivating in us new fruit that is drawn from the new root that we have in Jesus. And that uniting to Jesus means that we are able, by the presence, power, and patterning of the Spirit, to live um, um, in a contrary way to our nature. We are, we are able to overcome our own instinct to independence, individuality, and isolation. But what Paul is getting ready to argue for is persecution is coming. And to the degree that you are seeking your own individuality, your own independence, and your own isolation is the degree to which there are going to be chinks in the armor, there are going to be weaknesses in the full um, frontal assault that you are going to be facing by the world, and there is a distinct likelihood that you are going to receive blows um, that you need not take. So it's saying, Paul's saying it's through the Spirit that we stand together side by side in unity. Now, some of you will remember uh, some time ago I preached through the book of Judges. Um, I recall this being a very good idea at the time. And then uh, I got into Judges chapter 2 and decided that maybe, just maybe, we had made a mistake. Nevertheless, we persevered. Um, <clears throat> One of the things that was influential to me in thinking through how we approached that book was a white paper written by Greg Thompson um, called The Church in Our Time. Uh, It was at that point uh, available uh, through New City Commons. And Greg had laid out four categories of ways that Christians oftentimes engage with the world. And I want to remind you of these four categories, because I think they're really important for us to keep in mind. The four categories were domination, fortification, accommodation, and incarnation. So, briefly, the fortification mindset is the, is the bunker mindset. The fortification mindset is the mindset that says the culture around us is too far gone, too apostate to evil 
to whatever. And so to protect ourselves, we are going to fortify our ranks. We're going to uh, build walls. We are going to build bunkers. We're going to make sure that we keep ourselves safe from all the unsafe in the world. The domination mindset is the mindset that says, well, we have the truth, so let's just make sure that people hear the truth regardless of how the truth lands on them. And you'll recall what I said a couple weeks ago when I said truth without love is destructive because all you're really doing is saying the truth is what matters most, not the other person. But love without truth is deceptive because really love is not the name of the game at that point. It's just self-protection veiled with some nice words. You don't really care about the other person still. You're just making sure you don't offend anybody. But truth spoken in love is transformative. It develops. It changes. Because it's something that the other person needs to hear. But it's said with a genuine heart that says, I care. Well, let me tell you something right now. Um, The... uh, The domination mindset is the mindset that says truth is all that matters regardless of anything else. And if people don't like it, well, that's their problem because they're sinners. And it probably just convicted them or something. And that's not incredibly helpful because that isn't what Jesus did. Now, the third mindset is the mindset of accommodation. And this is the one, this is kind of the, uh, the love without truth mindset. This is the one that says, well, let's just kind of um, float along and assimilate into the culture as best we can and not say anything offensive. And maybe just by being really nice people that will love them into the kingdom. And the problem, again, is because the Bible's really clear about some things that that mindset um, just kind of does away with, right? It, it, it's, the, it's the very opposite of the domination mindset. It's the very opposite of the one that says the truth is all that matters, and if it convicts them, maybe they were just needed to be convicted in the first place. This is the one that says, well, maybe they just need to be loved, and let's not step on any toes. Then there's the fourth model. The fourth model is the incarnation mindset. was talking with Richard Pratt when he was here back last May. And we were talking about all of the um, glorious weirdness that is being a part of a denomination like ours. He's a minister in our denomination as well. He said, you know, if you want to find a way to change your culture, start with how you examine your ministers. Instead of starting out with all of the doctrinal, theological questions, and by the way, those things are important, why don't you ask your ministers uh, or your minister candidates when the last time was they shared the gospel with a prostitute? Or they held the hand of a dying woman in the hospital? If you want to start making a difference in the culture of the church, Start looking at who we're putting in pulpits. Are they going, uh, are they loving like Jesus loved and talking to who Jesus talked to? Or are they just finding people that are just like them? You see, Jesus went 
not to the well, but to the sick. Jesus went not to the ones that were doing fine, but the ones that weren't doing fine. Jesus went to the outcasts and to the marginalized, to the weak and to the helpless and to the powerless, to the lame, to the cripple. Jesus went to them and declared the good news of the kingdom of God being at hand. Jesus is the one that went in and went towards the ones that, there were, that were the unlovable and the unreachable. He went to them. And he offered himself. Oh, you want something that's going to be true? Go to a society full of rugged individualists and tell them that there's absolutely no way that they can work hard enough, do good enough, or do anything else to get into the kingdom. All they need to do is receive the gift of the one that's done everything for, him, for them and follow him. So Paul is saying, be of one mind. Walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. So when he talks about striving side by side together in this incarnation mindset, certainly there are uh, this walking side by side. If you look at the Greek and you look at the way that word is used in contemporary literature, certainly there is a way in which it is athleticism at v in view here. But if you looked at the type of games that were being played at that juncture, javelin, You look at some of the other, uh, some of the other things, uh, wrestling. These are sports to train for battle. These are not sports just for the sport of it. So what Paul really has in mind here is a Roman army advancing forward. Now, you remember the Roman army, when they carried a shield with them, how big was the shield? Do you remember? The shield is just about full body length, right? If they shielded, um, if, they, if they got behind those shields, if they stood, stood side by side and got behind those shields, it was like an impenetrable wall. There wasn't anything getting through them. And so Paul has in mind here this idea of a Roman army advancing forward. And he's going to develop this theme forward, but we should, one of the things that we should be careful of is to not presume that because he's using warfare imagery that it automatically means the domination, decimation, destruction mindset. Here Paul's simply evoking the idea of a wall of humanity, a continuous shield, that as you stand together, you're able to resist the assaults that will inevitably come your way. So don't get lost in the weeds and miss the point here. The point is that it's rooted in this idea. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So what is the manner of life that is worthy of the gospel? Well, first of all, Paul's not talking about you have to live a certain way to assure the fact that the gospel's still yours. The gospel literally means an announcement. It's the announcement of a sovereign. It is simply a declaration of what has been done. It's not a checklist for you to do. It is an announcement of what Jesus has done. So to let your life be worthy of the gospel as you follow Jesus, well, what is the manner of life that Jesus lived? It's found for us in Isaiah 53. We referenced some of those um, suffering servant motifs in our prayer of confession this morning. The Isaiah 53 motif that he was stricken for our transgressions. God laid upon him the iniquities of us all. 
That doesn't sound like battle. That sounds like giving up. And yet it is precisely through the laying down of Jesus's life that he, that he gathers for himself his people. He assumes his rightful reign and rule upon his throne. It's this upside down nature of the gospel, isn't it? It's by weakness that strength comes. It's through humility that power is gained. The suffering servant was despised and rejected of men. It's the humility of the crown exchanged for the cross. And so what Paul is saying here, that to the degree that believers are succumbing to pursuits and pleasures that are not the heart-stretching kingdom love for one another, but instead selfish pursuits of me before we, your life for mine. The solidarity of the people of God is fractured, and the assaults waged can have real and deadly consequences. Now, I've said before that we live in uh, what I think is going to ultimately be understood by history as 300 or so years of exceptionalism here in these parts of the West that we call the United States. 300 years of exceptionalism, um, a time where God has providentially allowed the free advance of the gospel But as history will likely also say, we are now seeing a turning of the tide where the church is once again moving out to the margins. This is fine, by the way, because the church has thrived in the margins always. So Alan Jacobs who's a professor at the Honors College at Baylor, says this. He says, when a society rejects the Christian account of who we are, it doesn't become less moralistic, but far more so, because it retains an inchoate, which is a word that means um, immature, not fully formed yet, still trying to develop, an inchoate um, sense of justice, but has no means of offering and receiving forgiveness. The great moral crisis of our time is not, as many of my fellow Christians believe, sexual licentiousness, but rather vindictiveness. Social media serves as a crack. (laughs) It serves as crack for moralists. There's no high like the high you get from punishing malefactors. But like every addiction, this one suffers from the inexorable law of diminishing returns. The mania for punishment will likely get worse before it gets better. If we get distracted by turning in on one another, pointing out everyone's flaws, succumbing to the cultural mandate of vindictiveness, we won't stand. But we also ought not be surprised when a culture that has, um, they have a moral compass They have no way to rectify moralism and forgiveness. It's like a snake that starts eating itself. If you don't toe the line, you'll be punished. You'll be called out. You'll be tried and ostracized. 
at some point this afternoon, go uh, read David Brooks's op-ed from a few weeks ago in the New York Times, The Cruelty of Call-Out Culture. There is simply no off switch, no way for restoration. It's one and done. You don't toe the line, you're ostracized. Paul himself towed a different line. A selfless love, a joy-infused humility. He can rejoice at the expanse of the kingdom, even if it is his, even if it is at his own expense, because the joy of being found in and the delight of King Jesus is worth whatever may happen to him in this life. And so because Paul has experienced this life-transforming power of the gospel, he can then, from that place, encourage imitation. Because he is beloved by God, his behavior can be changed. He tells the Philippians, because you are loved by God, your behavior can thus be different. What would it look like for them? What would it look like for us to long for the kingdom's expanse, even if it is at our expense? What do we have to give up so that it can be for Jesus' gain? It's like the diagnostic questions that Jack Miller asked years ago in his book, Outgrowing the Ingrown Church. What is it recently that you have started doing because you love Jesus? Can you name anything in the last six months, a year, in the last two years that you have started doing because you love Jesus and because you, are know that you know that you are loved by Jesus. Conversely, what can you name in your life in the past month, six months, or a year that you have stopped doing because you love Jesus? You have rearranged priorities. You have readjusted your expectations. You have stopped doing something because you love Jesus more. Paul says, for the Philippians... To stand together in selfless humility means that self must decrease. Jesus must increase. To stand in a manner worthy of the gospel, to stand shoulder to shoulder, side by side, is to not prepare to give a full frontal truth assault to the world around you, but to simply stand side by side as you pursue the world, as Jesus pursued the world, in selfless incarnational love. That's a very different type of motif than what we see oftentimes displayed and declared for around us. But let's keep going, shall we? The second thing I want you to see is that we face our adversaries with, with calm endurance, okay? So warfare, training, competition, uh, all these things are now in our minds. But how does Paul expect us then to face our adversaries? Well, look, we start in verse 28 by seeing Paul is exhorting them to not be frightened in anything by your opponents. Um, so the image here that that word frightened is often used for is like a horse that has been spooked. Have you ever been around a horse that's been spooked before? Okay. Or it's like the army that all of a sudden um, sees uh, something terrifying and breaks rank. It's like in Monty Python when they see the rabbit and they scatter and say, run away, run away. I would do the voice, but it's not pretty. Um, 
the believers when the opponents begin to hurl aggressive words, actions, attitudes, or to show indifference must not succumb to intimidation or be silenced. Paul does not say this from the comfort of a classroom or from the the cushy leather recliner in some sort of library where he sips his refreshing beverage and puffs on a pipe. Paul's in chains, right? He's in a rented room preparing to see uh, his fate determined before one of Caesar's tribunals. And Paul says to them, as a fellow soldier in the fight, he reminds them that they, like he, are engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have in verse 30. Sadly, for many of us here in the West, during this time of exceptionalism, I really do fear that it's made us comfortable in our comfort and tender to the touch. Oh no, the government may take away our rights to X, Y, or Z. Look at China right now and look at what's happening. People right now are seeing what early rain church is going through and they are walking away from the state-sanctioned church and said, for the sake of Jesus and because of what you have been through, now I believe that I can do that too. Do you know how God is bringing revival in China right now? It's not through the ease that's been created by a government that welcomes the church. It's not through the comfort of having to be able to write off on your tax return that you give to a charitable organization. It's not through the fact that we can choose whether or not in the morning to hit the snooze button or casually drive to church. God is bringing revival in China right now because of the people of God being persecuted for the name of God under the authority of Jesus. And they're saying, let it come. Comfort can make us weak and tender to the touch. If you think that the biggest threat to the church today is whether or not our tax write-offs or freedom of speech would be challenged, beloved, I have another question for you. What do you think it is that advances the church? Is it freedom of speech or thriving in the midst of persecution? For us, now I want to put this out there. If you don't agree with me, that's cool. For us, solidarity in the gospel sounds great as long as it doesn't inconvenience us. So what do we do about that? How do we get this type of toughness that Paul's talking about? How do we recover this level of calm endurance that Paul is talking about? It's not through our vain assumption that to to be victorious means that we're going to be vindicated, right? We're going to win the battle in the courts. We're going to win the battle by getting the right person on the ballot. We're going to show all those pagans what the church is really about. No. No, in fact, what's, what's going to go on, what, what may just happen, is that you may actually find that you lose your life. You lose your comforts. You lose your freedom. You lose your exceptionalism. But if we jettison incarnation and humility and go on the offensive, we're no better. And then whine about it and say, well, they started it. No, they didn't. People aren't the enemy. 
Satan is the enemy. Do you understand this? The enemy of the cross of Christ is sin, the flesh, and the devil. People aren't the enemy. Paul says here, uh, instead, in verse 28, that our real hope is that we, when we are pushed hardest for standing for Christ, by subversively loving, by drawing near to, by embracing the marginalized, the voiceless, the powerless, that we are in those moments subverting the way the world works, and we are subverting the works of the devil. Look at what he says in verse 28, that we would not be frightened, spooked like a horse in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Don't be afraid. Persecution comes, let it come. Marginalization comes, let it come. Do you think for one moment that's going to topple Jesus' mission? That he didn't foresee that coming? That that's going to be one move that he didn't anticipate? That it'll be checkmate by the devil? I think not. As we risk pointing our neighbors to a better king and a better kingdom, when we risk defying the status quo and calling the effects of the fall for the sin that it is and preaching the grace and mercy and truth of a God that hears and sees and saves for himself a people by becoming their disgrace of the earth is maddening to a world turned in on itself. And Paul says that when that happens, when the assaults begin, it is both a clear sign of the gospel bubbling up in the midst of the infection like hydrogen peroxide on a wound. And also to us that we are seeking the glory and the expanse of the kingdom, even if it's at our expense. Our hope is not in vindication, but in resurrection. Do you think that when the martyrs that would leave from Calvin Seminary in Geneva and they would pack their belongings in a casket, it's just because they couldn't find a better suitcase? And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. The preview of the end of the battle doesn't make us smug or arrogant or asinine. It must instead make us humble. Do you know why? Do you know why it makes us humble? The destruction that Jesus promises is the destruction that you and I deserved. (laughs) The cross upon which Jesus bled and died is the punishment that he took from us for us. The wounds that made us whole were the wounds that we deserved. But the cross of Christ and the victory of Jesus never make us smug. Never make us arrogant. Never make us think that we got something because we were good enough, better enough, stronger enough. Moral enough. Righteous enough. Put together enough. We were not enough. That's why we needed a rescuer and God sent us a rescuer in Jesus. And if his mercies are from everlasting to everlasting, 
would it then be our hope and our aim that all would hear and all would experience the transforming grace of Jesus Christ in their lives? Would we never smugly boast that our neighbors are just lost, pagans, sinners, helpless? Would it break our hearts? The fact that Paul says it. He says our salvation is from God. It's a reminder of the sheer grace upon which we stand. That our posture worthy of the gospel is built on nothing other and nothing less than the bruised and bleeding back of Jesus. That he took our shame and sin and conferred upon us his grace and glory. It is us. It is us who look out like Jesus does in Matthew 9 and sees people. And they're not headlines. They're not inconveniences. They're not malefactors. They're not despots or dictators. We look out on them and we see them as Jesus saw them in Matthew 9. He looked out upon the people and he had compassion for them. For they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus, the righteous one who came to die, Jesus looked out upon those who would later spit and scourge and saw them with compassion for they were harassed and they were helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Do you know what a scared animal does? It bites. Jesus loved them. He loved us. Compassion isn't anger. It's not avarice. It's hard to have compassion for people you hold in contempt. Be careful what your diet is. Be careful how much 24-hour news you're taking in, how much talk radio and headlines and social media. It's all tribalism, friends. It's all seeking to set up an us versus them. It is thriving on the disjointed nature of our world and profiting on it and making money from it. You cannot look with compassion on those you hold in contempt. Now, this is not a warfare strategy taught in any military college that I know of. This is a strength from humility. This is a determination from compassion. This is a desire to fight for the sake of restoration, not destruction. This is a my life for yours. I give myself to you rather than I protect myself from you. Now, how do we do this? Third point, quickly. Verse 29. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Okay? Two gifts. Gift of faith, gift of suffering. Now, um, <clears throat> I want to go back first and think what it really is, really, to let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Um, so this, this passage is a grace-saturated passage. Um, the gospel is not a sense of responsibilities. It's news to be heard and received. It's an announcement of what God has done. So how do we stand then? Um, how do we stand then in firm unity and humility? Simple. God grants us gifts. God grants us gifts. 
We have the gift for the sake of Christ to believe and have faith. And we have the gift for the sake of Christ to suffer for his name. And this word that Paul uses for gift, its, it's root has its heart in the word that means grace. It is a grace. It is a grace to believe. It is a grace to suffer. To be gifted with faith means that our trust is not in the earnestness of our prayers, the intentions of our hearts, the works of our hands, or the contrition over our needs. It puts its stock instead wholly and only in Jesus alone. We would do well to be reminded as to what our confession says again about saving faith, that it is nothing less than and nothing more than accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for justification, sanctification, and eternal life. But what about the second gift? What about the gift of suffering? Um, I have to be honest, uh, I, uh, um, this is not something I classify as a gift. I looked on all my wish lists. It's not there. I did not click, I wish for suffering. So how do, you, how do you say a hearty yes and a hearty amen to the fact that our faith is not ours? Well, that one's easy, right? We can say, oh, yes and amen. Glory, hallelujah. Not the work of my hands, but Jesus's. Yes, sir. Amen. Gift of suffering. It goes back to what our greatest joy is, doesn't it? Jesus, for the joy set before him, went to the cross. For him to live was us. Suffering was a grace to him, and it was through his suffering that he bestowed grace to us. Think about it. Just think about it for a second. Think about how God used Jesus' sufferings to bring you everlasting joy. Once the fear of death itself is removed, once our greatest delight is found in Christ, we can welcome delight or distress with open arms like old friends. Why? Because it's my life for yours. Do I live a life of ease? Only let that life of ease be to your gain and your good. Do I live a life of suffering? Only let that life of suffering then be to your gain and your good. Do you see the upside down nature of this? The only way you can receive suffering as a gift is if it is founded in Jesus and you know that he is using suffering for the ultimate glory, gain, and good of his kingdom. Mm. Mm. In Acts 5, think about how the apostles, uh, how they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. When suffering came, the Spirit came with it, bringing empowering and enabling grace to bring glory to Jesus. Dear friends, brothers and sisters in Jesus, listen. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are not our enemies. Our friends and neighbors in this world who do and say hurtful and harmful things are not our enemies because they are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. The only enemy is Satan, sin, the flesh, death. And where is death? Death is conquered. Where is our flesh? Crucified with Christ. Where is Satan? Crushed underfoot of the victorious king on a short leash that has an expiration date. 
Not only are we a people who have together received God's saving and sustaining grace, but we are too also together a people in daily continual need of God's saving and sustaining grace. It is only this grace that enables us to have a heart-stretching love that moves toward our neighbor, not in accommodation or domination or fortification, but in incarnation. It is this heart-stretching love that enables us to see the benefit of risking our comfort for our neighbor's care. Here's the thing. Our culture around us can do much to make our lives loathsome. I'm not saying I'm looking forward to that day, by the way. Especially as one that has decided to make his living and provide for his family and put bread on the table this way. Right? Do I want Jen writing blog posts about her husband being in prison? Not especially. But here's the thing. I know that the kingdom matters more than my comfort, my safety, my security. Matters more than yours too. And if it is a kingdom... And if it is Jesus's, then that means our hope is not that we get to live another day here, but we long for the day when Jesus comes and restores this world to its rightful glorious place, makes all sad things untrue, wipes every tear from every eye, and on that day when we rejoice at the fact that there is no more sickness, sorrow, pain, and death, and they are felt and feared no more. That's the day we look forward to. And that's the day that we see is a kingdom made up of lots of people from lots of places of the most unlikely sorts that would be there. Some that even now, like the Apostle Paul, you might see on the evening news shouting obscenities at those that would declare the gospel of grace. It would be filled with the most unlikely of folks from the most unlikely of places. The reason I know that is because I hope in Christ alone, that I'll be there. And if God can rescue me, God can rescue anyone.